number of years ago, in fact, quite a few years ago, when I was a relatively new pastor, I was criticized by a couple in our church because I was a full-time paid staff pastor. What bothered this couple about me being a full-time pastor is that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the requirements listed by the Apostle Paul for being an elder is, and I quote, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. And in this couple's view, the only way to meet this requirement was for a man to have a job outside of the church so that unbelievers can get to know him and therefore affirm his good reputation and character. Now, the problem with this couple's view was that it imposes something on Scripture that just isn't there. You see, this couple made the assumption that the only way unbelievers could possibly know about a man's character is if he works with them. But I want you to notice 1 Timothy 3 verse 7 doesn't say that. It doesn't say that an elder must have a secular job in order to have a good reputation with those outside of the church. It simply says that an elder must have a good reputation with those outside of the church, meaning unbelievers. And it doesn't specify how he goes about getting a good reputation. One can certainly gain a good reputation with those outside the church by treating his neighbors well, by interacting well with unbelievers who he speaks to, by making sure his bills are paid on time, by being pleasant to salespeople and clerks in a store, by tipping waiters and waitresses generously, by refraining from gossip and slander like others around you, by refusing to make lewd jokes and things of that nature. And besides all of this, The biblical proof that the Apostle Paul was not forbidding pastors from being full-time paid employees of the church is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he specifically argues that ministers of the gospel should be paid by the church for their labors. Here's what Paul wrote. 1 Corinthians 9, starting with verse 1. He said, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. 
Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, a few weeks ago, we began to look at these verses, and I told you at that time that in this passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about his rights as an apostle to be supported financially by the Corinthian church. And the reason, folks, he does this is because he is reinforcing the truth that he just taught in the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So I remind you that in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addressed a major conflict in the church at Corinth. And the conflict concerned eating foods that had been previously sacrificed to a false god, to an idol. And this was a conflict. Why? Because there were some in the church who, having come out of idolatry and rather recently, they had a weak conscience when it came to doing anything associated with their old pagan idol worship. And so for them to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol, it was the equivalent in their minds of practicing their old paganism, and their conscience simply would not allow it. Not at this time. However, and here's where the conflict came in, there were others in the church who were very different. There were others who did have a strong conscience when it came to eating foods that had been sacrificed to an idol, and so they really had no problem with any of this. It just didn't bother them in the least. The problem was that if someone with a weak conscience saw someone with a strong conscience eating food that had been sacrificed to an idol, it could result in them the ones with the weak conscience being ruined spiritually because they would then be tempted to eat this food thinking that if he can do this, then certainly I can do this. But they couldn't, not without violating their conscience. It'd be wrong for them because they would defile their conscience and it would start them on a road that would lead to callousing their conscience by sinning just more and more. And so they would end up being ruined spiritually. Now, Paul's solution to this problem is found in verse 9 of chapter 8. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 9. He says, Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And he means the weak in conscience. So, addressing those with a strong conscience, and understand throughout this chapter, Paul is only addressing those with a strong conscience. The apostle refers to their ability to eat food offered to an idol as this liberty, this freedom of yours. And what he means by this is that they had a right, a freedom to eat this food. It was their liberty. It was their right to do this. However, and it's a big however, the point that he's making is that though you have every right to eat such food, you should not use this right if it causes others in the church to stumble. In other words, what the apostle is saying is that they should refrain from using this right to eat this food out of love for their brethren. And then, having stated this as a general principle for them to put into practice, Paul then reveals to them that this is exactly how he conducted his life. He's not telling them to do something that he didn't do himself. 
What he did is he gave up his own right to eat this type of food for the sake of others who were weaker in conscience than he was. Notice what he writes in verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. He means meat that had been offered to an idol. For Paul, uh, practically speaking, it would be no issue. Paul was not coming out of idolatry. He was coming out of many years prior to this. He was an Orthodox, Pharisaical Jew, so this wouldn't bother him. But he says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll not eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul just gave it up. It didn't matter to him. Even if the food was delicious, he gave it up. Now, watch what Paul does next. Having made the point that he has chosen as a lifestyle to forego his right to eat food, sacrifice to an idol if it would cause his brother in Christ to stumble, as he moves into what we call chapter 9, he illustrates this principle of giving up one's rights for the sake of others by speaking about something completely different from eating food sacrificed to an idol. Instead of his right to eat certain food, which he gave up, he tells the Corinthians that though he has every right to receive wages from them for his work as an apostle on their behalf, he has chosen to give that up too. Now that hits closer to home with Paul. As I said, I don't think Paul had any big problem about giving up certain food, but giving up the right to not be paid, that was a bigger deal. He says he's not going to use that right. He's voluntarily surrendered that right, meaning that he has refused to be paid for his services. You see, what Paul is doing in chapter 9 is he is reinforcing the truth that when it comes to doing certain things that we consider to be our inherent rights, things that we feel entitled to, we are to surrender those rights by not using them if by using them it would cause harm to anyone else. If it doesn't cause harm to someone, then it's not even an issue. And using himself as an example of this, Paul tells the Corinthians that though he has every right to be supported financially by them, he's given up that right. Why? For the simple reason that to accept wages from this church could hinder the gospel from impacting the lives of some people who might think that Paul was just a religious huckster, a con artist, whose only goal in preaching was to take money for it and to exploit people financially, to just take advantage of them. And so he has chosen not to receive any money from this church. But listen closely, because before Paul says anything about refusing to receive wages for his ministry, he first argues that he has every right to receive wages for his ministry. And then, after establishing this as his right, he then informs the church that he has chosen to give up that right, just as they are to give up their right to eat food sacrificed to an idol. It's really a, a brilliant strategy on the part of the Apostle Paul, a brilliant argument. And so with this as our background, we're now ready to resume our study of this chapter by looking at the various reasons that Paul gives as to why the Corinthian church should financially support him since he was an apostle. And as an apostle, he was entitled to their financial support. Now, as I told you the last time we studied this chapter, although Paul is teaching that as an apostle, he should receive wages. There is a timeless principle that's presented here, a timeless principle that really applies to staff 
pastors and ministers being paid by the churches that they serve. You see, we don't have apostles anymore. Apostles, along with New Testament prophets, have passed from the scene because having formed the foundation of the church, as Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, meaning what? Meaning the writings of the New Testament, they are no longer needed. The apostles have fulfilled their function, which was to deliver once and for all the faith to the saints in the form of their written teaching known as New Testament doctrine, apostolic doctrine. But pastors, pastors continue to exist and their role is to explain and apply the writings of the apostles to the church. And therefore, since they are today's ministers of the word serving their congregations, just as apostles in former times were to receive wages from the churches, so pastors are to receive wages from the churches they serve. And so, having taken the first three verses of chapter 9 to establish the fact that he is a genuine apostle, from verses 4 all the way to 14, Paul gives a number of reasons as to why he had every right as an apostle to receive financial remuneration from the Corinthians. Now, in case you're thinking that this isn't particularly relevant to you, because after all, you are not a pastor, so this doesn't affect you at all. Let me tell you why this is relevant for you. First of all, it's relevant because you may be in a church where the people don't want to pay for a full-time pastor, and you may be the one who will have to explain to them what the Bible teaches about paying a pastor. In fact, you may find yourself asked to be on the salary review committee, and then you'll wish you had listened closely to these messages. Secondly, just knowing what the Bible teaches about paying the salaries of your pastors, that is a constant reminder to you of the important work that they do in teaching you the Word of God. You see, if you didn't pay your staff pastors for their service, then they would be forced to get jobs outside of the church to support their families. And if that was the case, then they wouldn't have the time to study and shepherd you like they do. And ultimately, you would feel the negative effects of that on your own spiritual life. In fact, that is one of the biggest problems facing the evangelical churches in the nation of Italy. As many of you know, I've spent a considerable amount of time ministering in Italy. In fact, one time I counted up approximately how long I've been there, and over the course of years, it comes out to about eight months I've spent in Italy, so I have some exposure to the churches there, and it is my observation that most of the Bible, and I'm talking about Bible-believing evangelical Protestant churches that I am familiar with in Italy, unless they are pastored by a foreign missionary, they do not have full-time Italian pastors, and they think it's a good thing, but it's not a good thing because as a result, these churches are poorly taught believe me. And with the natural outcome being that the people who sit under such poor teaching are extremely weak spiritually. It is remarkable. I remember talking to my friend Phil Johnson about this as we both were ministering once in Italy, and we both concluded that Italy has had the gospel for over 2,000 years, and yet the churches are so weak. They are poorly taught. So, 
All of that to say, even if you are not a pastor, it is important for you to know why a church should financially support its pastors. Now, last time we looked at these verses, we covered a couple of reasons that Paul gave as to why he should be supported by the Corinthians. So I'm only going to mention them briefly because we've already covered this. The first reason being this, Paul says he has a right to earn a living so that he can physically sustain himself. Verse 4, he says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? It's rather simple and and straightforward. Simply put, what Paul means by this is that as an apostle, he has every right to be paid for his services so that he can afford to purchase food and drinks in order to sustain himself physically. That is to say, he had every right to be paid by them so that he could obtain enough nourishment to go on living, namely the nourishment of food and liquids. It's just as simple as that. There's nothing deeper here. Paul's first reason for why he should be paid by the church is that he has every right to eat food and drink liquids in order to stay alive. Now, the second reason Paul gave as to why he as an apostle had the right to receive financial support from the Corinthians, and I remind you by application why a local church should support their pastor is, he has a right, he says, to take his wife with him on ministry trips at the church's expense, verses 5 and 6. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, Cephas is Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I have the right to refrain from working? Now, what Paul is saying here is that if he were married, we know from 1 Corinthians 7 he was not married, but if he were to get married and his wife accompanied him on ministry journeys where she was involved in ministry too, then the church should handle their financial expenses. This is what he says other churches did for the other apostles, and therefore this is what he was entitled to in terms of the Corinthian church doing for him. And the reason that he adds verse 6 is to say, while all the other apostles are being taken care of financially by those they minister to, is it right that only Barnabas and myself have to work outside jobs in order to support ourselves? Is that proper? And of course, the answer to this question is no, it's not proper because he has every right to be treated by the Corinthians like the rest of the churches have treated the other apostles, meaning he should be financially supported just like these other men are. Now, this is where we left off last time. And so as we continue, we're going to now see a third reason Paul gave as to why he as an apostle was entitled to receive financial support from the Corinthians. And that is because, number three, it is the commonly understood practice of society that everyone has a right to make a living from their work. Verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now notice, in this verse, Paul asks three questions concerning three different types of occupations. The soldier, the farmer, and the shepherd. With each question expecting a negative answer. First he asks if a soldier serves at his own expense. And the answer is, well, of course not. That's unthinkable. No soldier pays for his own uniform, his own housing, his food, his military weapons, his travel expenses. That's absurd to think that he would pay for that. No, these things are paid for by those he serves to protect. Secondly, Paul asks if a farmer plants 
a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat the fruit of it? And again, the answer is, of course he has the right to eat the fruit of his own farming. Everybody knows that. Third, Paul asks if a shepherd has the right to drink the milk of the animals, he tends to. And once again, the answer is, well, of course he does. This is just the way the world operates. Everybody understands this. Now, in bringing up these three occupations, Paul's point is rather obvious. If everyone understands that these workers that he's mentioned, they have the right to make a living from their work that they're involved in, then they, the people of the Corinthian church, should understand that he also has the right to earn a living from his work for them as an apostle. This is just common sense. And something that everyone in every culture understands and practices. Just, this is how society operates. But as Paul continues, he goes beyond culture, beyond society, beyond common sense, by appealing to Scripture. As he gives a fourth reason why he, as an apostle, should be financially supported. And that is because, number four, the law of God teaches the principle of workers being paid for their labor. Verses 8 and then the first part of verse 9. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now Paul asks if what he has just said about workers getting paid for their labor is something that's just based on common sense and cultural standards and nothing more than that. And his answer is that this principle of being paid for one's work is not simply based on human judgment, but it is actually, he says, it's based on the Word of God. It has biblical authority because in the law of Moses, it is written, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, what Paul is referring to with these words, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, which forbids putting a muzzle on an ox while that ox was working so that he wasn't able to feed on some of the grain as he drew the threshing machine over it or stomped on it with his feet. In other words, this law made sure that oxen were able to eat as they worked. Eating the grain was their payment for their labor. But notice what Paul says right after bringing up this law about animals eating. As he continues verse 9 and then verse 10, he says this, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So having just quoted the verse that forbids muzzling an ox while it was working, The apostle wants the Corinthians to understand that this fits his argument that he should be paid by them. And so he asks if God is concerned about oxen or if this Old Testament law goes beyond animals. And his answer is that the intent, 
the divine intention of this law has to do with human beings being paid for their labors and not simply animals because whoever plows a field or threshes a field should do so in the hopes of sharing the crops, meaning that they should be paid for their labor by eating the food that they work so hard to produce. So now he's talking about human beings. Now let me stop here and explain something important so that we do not misunderstand what Paul is saying. When he states God is not concerned about oxen, is he? The apostle does not does not mean that God isn't concerned about the welfare of animals. We know that he cares about animals. Why? Because his word teaches that. So I wouldn't want you to misunderstand this. For example, in Job chapter 38, verse 41, we read, He, meaning God, prepares nourishment for the raven. God prepares food for that bird. Psalm 147, verse 9, he gives to the beast its food. God does care about animals. He provides food for them. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, the first part of it, Jesus said this. He said to his disciples, now look at the birds of the air. And I wouldn't be surprised if a flock of birds was flying by at that time. He said that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. God feeds the birds. So it's certainly true that God does care for the animals. He created them. He doesn't neglect them and neither should we. But what Paul is saying is that while Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 taught the humane treatment of animals, its primary purpose was to teach the principle that human beings were to be reimbursed for their labors. In commenting on why Paul would use Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 about muzzling an ox to teach that humans are to be paid for their work, Bible scholar Simon Kiestmacher had these very insightful words, and so I quote them to you. He writes this, John Calvin asks why Paul did not resort to a clearer illustration from the Mosaic law and provides the example of a hired man who lives in poverty and needs his wages. God says to the man's employer, pay him his wages each day before sunset. And what he's doing is he's actually quoting loosely from Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15. And so Calvin is simply saying, wouldn't that have been a more appropriate verse to use? But Kiesmacher continues. He said, but Paul reasons from the lesser to the greater. If God wants the farmer to take care of his ox, Does he not require man to take greater care of his fellow man? And I think he nails it. That's exactly the point. If we are to be kind to animals and make sure that they're not muzzled so that they can eat and be provided from the work they've done, then even more should we be concerned about human beings being paid for the work they do. And that's simply the point that Paul is making correctly, because he was an inspired man, correctly interpreting this Old Testament verse about not muzzling an ox while he's working. Paul's point is this isn't simply cultural. It's not simply common sense. It's not just society's standards, though it is that. It's just not only that that says that a laborer should be paid for his services, but he's saying that God's authoritative word teaches this. Now, in light of this truth, Paul then applies 
this truth to his situation with the Corinthians. He says in verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now, what Paul means by these words is that in light of the biblical truth, because he's just quoted from the Mosaic Law, that God wants men to be paid for their labor, then shouldn't he be paid by the Corinthians for his labor towards them? And he defines his labor for them. Notice, he calls it sowing spiritual things. What does he mean by that? In other words, his work was sowing spiritual seeds of God's word into them. Meaning he taught them biblical truths that benefited them spiritually. That's precisely what Paul means. And because he sowed spiritual truths in them, he has every right, he says, to expect that he will reap material benefits from them. And the material benefits, folks, that he's talking about and he's referring to would be such things as money, food, housing, and any other supplies that he needed. Listen, in spite of what some people think, Pastors should be paid for their work by the people that they serve. But there are many churches who either refuse to pay their pastors, like the churches I've mentioned in Italy, or they pay him such a low salary that by necessity he has to get a second job to help with his expenses, which then negatively impacts the church by limiting how much time he's able to give to shepherding the people of the flock. Concerning the principle of a church paying its pastors for their ministry, John MacArthur has written this. He said, the Lord's servants deserve to be supported well. There should not be a double standard applying to preachers, missionaries, and other Christian ministers, a standard that is considerably lower than that set for those laboring in the system of man. We should pay them generously as is feasible and leave the stewardship of that money to them just as we expect the stewardship of our own money to be left to us. It is our Lord's will that we be generous to our pastors, our educational workers, our missionaries, and to those leaders of any kind who come and minister to us just as he has been so immeasurably generous to us. And sadly though, this is not always the case. I know of pastors who have struggled greatly in this area because the church they serve is not sensitive to their material needs. Often there's someone on the leadership board of the church who resents giving a raise to the pastor even though the pastor may tirelessly work to serve that church. And sometimes church members just fail to give their pastors an appropriate salary because they have no idea how hard he works to serve them. Ray Stedman, longtime pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California, he writes about people coming to him and saying, Pastor Stedman, you have such an easy life. You're paid a full-time salary, but you only work one day a week, Sunday. You have Monday through Saturday off. I wish I'd been a pastor so I wouldn't have to work so hard. In response to such ignorance, Ray Stedman said, and I quote, people are often unaware that many pastors work 60, 70, or more hours a week and often sacrifice time with their families because of meetings, sermon preparation, counseling, visiting the sick, dealing with people in crisis, and so forth. So listen, when Paul asks in verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you, the answer is a resounding no, it is not too much. Because if the people of the church 
have benefited spiritually from their pastor's ministry, then he has every right to expect that they will take care of his material needs. Now, once again, as we did a few weeks ago, we have to close our study without seeing where Paul is really headed in this chapter. Next time, we will see that. And where he is headed, note this, is to say that although I have every right to receive wages from you, the Corinthians, I have chosen to voluntarily give up my right in order not to hinder the impact of the gospel on the lives of others. That's where Paul is going with this. And so, by application, what all of us need then to think about and to pray about is simply this, is to consider if there is anything in your life that God may want you to give up some right that you feel you have, but a right that if kept could negatively impact someone else. That's something for you to think about. That's something for you to pray about. For the Corinthians, it was giving up the right to eat certain foods. For Paul, it was giving up the right to eat, yes, certain food, as well as receiving money for his work as an apostle. What might it be for you? Well, you just need to ask the Lord for wisdom, and then, most importantly, act upon it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very, very fascinating passage of Scripture. We pray that as it has been proclaimed that you'll help all of us to consider these truths and also, Lord, wisdom to know what, if anything, you want us to give up for the sake of others. So often we think we have a right to do whatever we want to do, and if someone doesn't like it, it's their problem, but that is not walking in love. And so I pray that you will help us to be mindful of what you would have us to do. I do thank you for Lakeside's generosity to me and to the rest of our staff pastors, and Lord, we pray that other churches would be sensitive. I pray for the churches in Italy. I pray that they will wake up to their biblical responsibility to pay their pastors, to hire full-time pastors, and to see that this is indeed what Scripture teaches. May the churches in Italy grow because their pastors are teaching accurately the Word of God. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.